Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, pause this recording, give us a five-star rating, and review us kindly. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, an Anglican priest. Chris, how are you? Kirk, I'm great. Uh, This is a busy week for us. Lots going on. Uh, But first, I want to apologize to our listeners. Uh, I'm sure they're heartbroken that we did not have an episode last week. It was a very (laughs) busy week for me, and um, some things came up, and... I, I was just, it was my fault. Blame me. I was not able to make the time to, to sit down and record with Kirk. So um, direct all your hate mail to me. Uh, Kirk, uh, Isaac started soccer. Yes. Uh, Wednesday nights. Uh, he's never really played a sport before. And this is his first, uh, first kind of foray into that. I mean, so he started skiing last winter, but this is like the other, only other kind of athletic thing besides like playing on the playground. And oh man, it's adorable watching him out there. It's kind of a late time. He's kind of old to be starting. He's seven years old. He's going to be eight this month. But, uh, you know, for a kid that we never knew if he'd be able to even play sports, it's, it's just right. thrilling to, to watch him out there, chasing the ball, kicking it. Um, it's fun. Um, this Sunday, Kirk, is is uh, some of our people, some of our listeners know, but I am a, not just a priest. I am a church planter that, that we planted a church here in Sioux Falls this is a new work uh, that God is, has, has kind of brought up and established. And we do the planting and God does the nourishing. And we're going to celebrate our third birthday this uh, weekend, um, celebrating three years of God's faithfulness and, and, prov- and provision. Um, so that's super exciting. Um, Got anything fun it, lined up for that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're going to have cake, of course. Um, Are they going to shoot you out of the cake? Do you, are you going to climb out of it? Are they going to shoot you into a cake? (laughs) No, but we have an excellent baker in in our congregation. So like, she's going to make a cake. She's going to climb out of the cake. Let's. uh, It's just an ordinary cake. Is that what you're saying? Just a cake. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And last year, coincidentally, our building happened to have a bouncy house in there um, that uh, like we rent space and, and we're like, Hey, so we noticed you've got this bouncy house here for this other event. Can, can we use it? And so like last year we had a bouncy house. So I think, you know, kids, you do something once and that's a tradition. I think some of our kids will be upset that, that well, where's the bouncy house? Well, so, sorry. Um, uh, I mean, we are going to have a kind of a, a program afterwards where people, uh, we did that last year and it was just super cool. I, I am so encouraged to hear testimonies of what 
uh, God is doing in the lives of people. Um, it's just encouraging for me to hear people share, you know, uh, like the, it's a reminder, like, of course we know that God's alive and God's working and God heals and God changes and God restores, but to hear specific ways God's doing that, that's a lot of fun. And of course, Kirk, tomorrow is my birthday. It's yes. my last uh, birthday in my thirties. I'll be turning 39 tomorrow. And Ooh, oof. Uh, which means next year we should, I should have a pretty big bash. Um, you know, should ring in four. Oh, my four. Oh, my four. Oh, is pretty good. So you, yeah. you I, 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 uh, rec- I highly recommend it. Um, or, or you could be one of those who remains perpetually 39 officially. Oh, I'm not, like, I'm not afraid of what comes with age. Like does right. lying about it, make the, the body ache any less. It's a, a very good point. Uh, what's going on here? Um, my oldest son, who is my fellow sci-fi fantasy aficionado, my fellow Lord of the Ringer. Uh, my, my, is my that fellow... what you guys call each other? Like ringers? Like if you like Lord of the Rings, is we call each other fans? Ringers? Um, he's a member of House Ent. I'm a member of House Arendelle. No. Um, and Ent's... Um take a long time to, to speak. He, um, so what, what's, what's the, he takes the a long time to get moving. So maybe he'd be entish <laughs> they, in that regard. They, they make sure they don't speak unless they have, you know, anything worth saying, saying is worth taking your time to say something like that or something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, so uh, he had read, I'd read Dune two years ago. And to be clear, and Dune is not just a book. It is a it's six of books. books. Yeah. And yeah. The so when you first, say you read Dune, you read all six? Okay, well, the first trilogy is a thousand pages. So <laughs> so I read the first trilogy. Now, Kirk, are Not, they are they separate? Like, do, do you know what I'm asking? Are they separate books that are just like for the sake of you can't bind a thousand page book. So they cut basically one book into three or are they kind of distinct works? Uh, they're distinct works, though. Okay. I have them in like one gigantic anthology. Oh, you do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's actually Which, that's how i read lord of the rings too so like i don't think of it as i don't think of dune books. as three different books nor lord okay. of the rings and i always have to think hard about where each book begins and ends because for me i just like turned the page and i was on to the next book um, kirk i'm gonna i'm gonna interrupt for a brief story uh oh gosh, you, you okay. know uh david foster wallace's infinite jest yes big book yes yeah um that's the i jest. tried three times to read it <laughs> Um, twice with the paperback, which, uh, both times I gave up and I'm like, oh, maybe it's just that it's just too big that like, I'm just annoyed, like holding it up and, and just dealing with this book. That's seven inches thick. Um, maybe I'll get it on Kindle and that will make the difference. Kirk, it made no difference. I just, (laughs) I will not finish infinite jest. It's, uh, different strokes for different folks. It doesn't, he have, um, Sort of a postmodern writing style. Either you like it oh, or you don't. It's, yeah, yeah. So it's like James you're Joyce. Like, they're like they're people jumping, jumping back and forth to like seventeen different characters in different states, and and you're like, yeah. what's the common thread here? Who's that southern author that some people pretend to like? <laughs> you know, like there's a like yeah, a twentieth twentieth century Canadian. southern author, and and if you're in like a certain literary conversation, people will drop his name and. And uh, I, I think it's all baloney. I think everybody's reading him because they, oh my gosh. Faulkner? Yes, William yeah, Faulkner. Yeah, yeah. If you have ever said you like William Faulkner, <laughs> I'm calling you out on it. <laughs> no, it's not no real. You. <laughs> yeah, he was the David Foster Wallace Stop of the first half of the 20th century. He's a yes. thing. 
Right. Well, right. Kirk, I've read David Foster Wallace's essays, and they're, and they're very good. I mean, they're he's a brilliant yeah. and, and interesting guy, but like Infinite Jest was just, it's just not for me. Yeah. Anyway, let's go back to Dune. That was, Dune. That was, yeah. So Dune. Um, I, I was looking at movie times, and, and there have been several times where, where my oldest son and I, we, we've wanted to do it, and it hasn't played out. And uh, yesterday I was looking at movie times. I was like, yeah, we should, we, we, we have an, I have an errand. I have to run this about an hour away at 10 AM. And then after that, actually it was a fun errand, Christopher, guess what I was doing? I was picking up extra vestments for a choir for upcoming events. That's yes. Christopher was making a celebratory gesture. Where, where does one pick up vestments? Do you, do you have <laughs> uh, another a- parish in the diocese oh, okay. that, gotcha. That uh, that 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 had a choir, but in its season of its life right now, does not currently. So, gotcha. Because yep. these are these are quite pricey. Like anything kind of designed and, and manufactured for a church, yeah. uh, you can mark up like ten times. It's here's just what we're gonna end up doing though. Like, um, uh, our our adults are gonna end up wearing black robes and and surplices, and our children are gonna wear red and katas, which are like super short surplices. Okay, because that's and I wonder, will it look dumb or will it look, I, hopefully, I think, I think, it'll, I think it'll come yeah. together. It's, it's like Cambridge wear, right? Yes. Sort it was of. explained to me today. I didn't know this. Um, the reason like King's College very famously has the red robes, mm-hmm. color of royalty. Mm-hmm. And then um, it was it was imitated. Um, all, all royal choirs were red. And then okay. in America, that was imitated a lot, right? So St. George Windsor, um westminster abbey um other like royal chapels and royal peculiars all had red and then here stateside we were like you know oh oh, i was in england and uh the king's college choir wore red our, our church should wear red and it spread here across north america and and now so, it's so, become so you're like saying work. you you had i'm sorry uh, you're saying you had an errand and then you took your your son to to see did Dune. You, did you finish it? Yeah, to see to see Dune. And it was Christopher. We need we need to talk about it at some point. So you you should you should go and see it. Um, it was amazing. I'm still I'm still in the afterglow. Uh, it it'll be good. It'll give me time to to formulate thoughts. So you should see it this week, so we can talk about it. Yeah, and then we can talk about it next week. Kirk, uh, I am looking out the window, mm-hmm. and do you know what I see? Snow flurries yes not not accumulation but i am seeing and and you have to really squint to see the flurries uh but i just pulled up my weather app just to confirm are my eyes deceiving me and uh my app uh, says flurries uh which some may see some some people don't like the cold kirk some they see it as an abomination yeah is it a desolate like a desolate landscape like just kind of bare trees gray skies just desolate with the abomination of snow. Kirk, let's turn to our gospel lesson, which comes from Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 23. 
But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as, not, as has not been from the beginning of the creation God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this week's gospel text comes from what is frequently referred to as the little apocalypse, which you can find in, well, it's also called like the synoptic uh, apocalypse. You can find it in Matthew 24 and 25, and you can also find it in Luke 21. But before we jump in, it's worth noting that as is frequently the case with prophecy in scripture, it is worthwhile to note that some parts of this passage, along with you know, what we see in Daniel, what we see in Revelation, some parts of these prophetic texts refer to things that have already happened, um, that were in the future to the original audience, but have already happened. And some refer to things that have yet to happen. This tends to happen with 2,000-year-old texts. Like, um, so, some of those things came to pass early on, like shortly after these things were written down. So, in the first verse of this text, we see a reference to something called the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be. And then we're, we're given this interesting clue in this parenthetical statement, let the reader understand, where Mark does something that he doesn't do anywhere else, where he speaks directly to the reader. <laughs> like, let me be clear. Um, this is to bring clarity to these first century readers who are seeing or have seen these signs. This is to, to say, hey, these things that, that I'm talking about now, um, these are things that you have witnessed or will witness in, in the coming days. So first, this abomination of desolation. What in the world is this? Um, <laughs> this, this term comes from the book of Daniel. It's prophecy that this is coming. And, and we believe that Daniel's prophecy uh, refers to the events in 168 BC when this Seleucid empire came in, um, this Hellenistic uh, Greek, you know, this Greek empire uh, came in and Antiochus Epiphanes, this king of this Seleucid empire, set up an altar in the temple and made sacrifices to Zeus. Does that sound, Kirk, like an abomination of desolation where something is standing where it ought not to stand? absolutely yeah yeah where where the temples defiled the temple um to the holy god um that had been set aside um for uh very strict sacrifices i mean we have these books of leviticus and numbers and deuteronomy that that um show the the holiness of god and, and the the sacredness of what these what cultic worship needs to look like and then these outsiders come in and just 
this totally sacrilegious thing that that was an abomination. Um, and so, uh, of course, this this uh, did this triggered um, the Jews just a little bit, right, Kirk? There was a bit of a reaction. This Maccabean uh, rebellion. It it did. <laughs> These Hasmonean kings came up and um, kicked some butt. That's a and and um, if you've never read uh, Maccabees, it is stirring reading. Um, evidence that God, God never really abandons His people, mm-hmm. and that miracles can still happen even in darkest times. Like it's almost something out of Lord of the Rings. Speaking of Lord of the Ringers, <laughs> but go ahead. Well, yeah, and, and it's interesting. We have like these biblical uh, feasts, like Feast of Booths, you know. Um, all these things that we see people celebrating in the Bible, but then there are things like um, Purim, you know, this, this feast remembering God's um, providence in, um, in Esther um, and that the Jews celebrate today. And, and we also have Hanukkah, which comes from uh, a celebration of, of uh, the Hasmoneans basically in, in their, in the Maccabean revolt. So um, this was like this very brief time when the Jews kind of this return to um, independence and, and power that was um, from about 110 BC until 63 BC when it became a, a, a client kingdom of Rome. So it wasn't a very long period that that Judea was independent and and I guess great again. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Uh, so I love it. <laughs> in Jesus' time, there was relative peace between the Romans and the Jews. Um, typically, r- the Romans when they would take over a uh, a religious people um, would force sort of the empire's religion on those people. But they, they realized that the Jews were a little bit touchy about that. Yeah. <laughs> and so th- they essentially let the Jews um, do their own thing as far as worship goes. Wouldn't we say that Jews had peculiar liberties oh, in sure. the Roman Empire as opposed to other conquered peoples? Oh, Absolutely. Peculiar. Yeah. Unique. No one else got this treatment. Yeah. But this, this was brief. And even, even this, this kind of uh, tense uh, kind of peace that they had, it, it wasn't, it didn't last super long because people on either sides, either zealots, I mean, and we, and we read in scripture of, of uh, due to um, the Jews and, and kind of the people who, Remember the expectation that, that people had that Jesus would overthrow the Romans. Yeah. Like there, there were many people well, what's in the time behind like, to Paul, but you know, with, with Paul, there was one time in acts where they're like, aren't you the guy who led like 300 warriors out into the wilderness against the Romans? He's like, no, I'm not that guy. Like yeah. there, there were all these kind of um, people who were seeking to liberate um, so, Judea from Rome. But also what's lurking behind that is that the, the Kings, the line at that point, the line of Herod is not in the Davidic line. No. Um, which, which calls into question um, then the whole legitimacy of the whole uh, Jewish establishment, right? And so that's why you have um, dissatisfaction and in the more radical elements, a complete rejection of Herod's rule, right? And and in some sure. in some ways maybe the the uh, the rule the like the Temple Council and so forth. But well, sure. Ahead. But but even during Herod the Great's time. So of course when we see Herod. Um, in scripture, we see a few different Herods. Like Herod the Great was this great temple. Like he was, like the temple of Jesus' day was built by Herod the Great. Right. right. Um, but, so and even so, though he was like this collaborator with Rome and, and a very Machiavellian type, you know, to like sure uh, collaborate, but also like he 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 was the one who made this great temple that was this wonder of the world. Well, Christopher, I think about that all the time, right? So we read in Chronicles um, how 
the the temple is filled with smoke as the presence of the Lord descends um, when Solomon consecrates the temple, right? Mm-hmm. And Herod's temple was consecrated and it was beautiful, mm. more beautiful and mm. larger and mm. nothing happened. <laughs> and so I wonder if there was a sense that people were like, is this real? Sure. Is it, are, are we really back? Is, 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 is Judah really back? Is Judah really great again? I, I, I think about that all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess just to finish my point about the, the Herods, when mm-hmm. we see um, that the Herod and the John the Baptist head on a platter, that was not Herod the Great. That was, um, uh, uh, what's Herod Antipas? Yes. Yes, Antipasta. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Who who is like a tetrarch? He wasn't actually like he he was like a lesser um, uh, ruler than than um, Herod the Great. Anyway, um, man, I've been leading things, you far afield, sir. So. I'm coming back. Things okay. come to a head in AD 70 um, when uh, Roman had, had enough, and they go into the. I mean, after this protracted siege and struggle, and that itself was bad and, and a bit of an abomination, as like. Uh, the zealots were kind of holed up in the temple. <laughs> this is like their last stand. Um, but by eighty seventy, um, Rome had had enough. They invaded Jerusalem, took over the temple, and made sacrifices in the temple to their own legion. Um, and then they destroyed the temple. Which, if we read this chapter, should not be a surprise, right? Right. <laughs> At the beginning of the chapter, uh, you see that um, Jesus is walking out of the temple, and one of his disciples says, like, kind of idly he's like oh look at this isn't this so wonderful like this is so such a beautiful building and jesus is like yeah it's beautiful but <laughs> i tell you like each of these stones will be scattered like this temple will be destroyed um so it should not be a surprise when later in the chapter he kind of describes that and so at the destruction of the temple jesus gives instructions in today's reading he said this is what he's referring to in all likelihood let the reader understand in AD 70, he doesn't give a date to it, but like the Romans are going to come and they're going to destroy the temple. And Jesus gives strict instructions, flee to the mountains. Like don't go back and get your clothes, get out of Dodge. He wants the early church to know that this is not the last stand where they close ranks, circle up and fight to the death. Does that make sense, Kirk? Yeah. This yep. is not the end of time. Like the, the destruction of the temple is not the end. It's, it's a big event and a dangerous event, but this is not the end. The temple is no longer the center of worship. And because this isn't the end of time, although this is an abomination to see the fall of this temple, um, we knew that this would happen. Um, and, and that's why Jesus opens the chapter this way. Not, um, there will not be one stone left standing. So there are many people who are obsessed with eschatology, Kirk. Eschatology is simply the term that we use to, to ex- talk about the study of last things. But it is so easy to get this stuff wrong and to lose sight of the forest for the trees. So very briefly, let's explain what is the forest in this case? What is the big picture we ought to be looking at? Jesus is telling us that during our lifetimes, we will see some big things. Some of those have already happened, but this tribulation, this persecution, that will not end. In our lifetime, we will see persecution. It will, and each time, every people who has seen persecution, this will seem like the end, but these things are in fact not the end. These are not the last days. Um, persecution and tribulation, they're going to happen. But take heart. Take heart. Christ holds you in his hands. 
And if we were to continue reading, if we wouldn't have stopped at the end of this passage and just continued, uh, we would read about Christ's return. And this should be your takeaway. Okay? Um, that Christ's return, the, the true last days, are not going to be something that are easy to miss. Christ's return is not going to be ambiguous, Kirk. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read right. um, the following verses, starting in verse 24. Jesus says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its lights and the star will be falling. The stars will be falling from the heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Some of this may be metaphoric language, but certainly this is going to be a cosmic event in the sky. And then it tells us in verse 26, and then yes. they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So this Kirk is, is Jesus description of what the last days will look like is that it will not be ambiguous. There will be this great um, event in the sky that everyone will see. And let me read to you Paul's description, um, as this description was insufficient for some in Thessaloniki. Um, so he writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. He says this, but we do not want you to be an uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Do you feel like those things can be um, synthesized, those two texts? They, they sound a lot like the same thing, right? Big cosmic event, Christ returns, the dead will be raised. He's gathering the elect from these four winds. We're not going to miss this. Right, right. Um, Thessal uh, that passage from Thessalonians is often a proof text for the rapture. Mm. Um, but that's another conversation for another yes. time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's the, yeah, not, not, the, not the rapture. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so that's, that's the big picture. That's the forest that, that there will be tribulation. There'll be suffering, but in the end, Christ will return and every tear will be wiped away. But yeah. let's not lose sight of the forest for the trees, right? Let's not get too caught up with like these small details and lose sight of the, of the big picture. Even though Jesus says no one will know the day or the hour, some people are obsessed with reading things into the text as signs that this is the year, that this year is the year, or next year is the year, or this is the hour, this is the day. Um, people read Daniel, and um, I, I've never heard this, but I remember Kirk, um, a, a, pa a pastor friend of ours, talked about how somebody came up to him after he preached on Daniel and was like, I noticed that you didn't talk about uh, the nuclear sub submarines in the, in the text. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, they're not there. <laughs> like there's, there's no nuclear submarines in the text. Like let's not put things into the text that aren't there. We do not know the day nor the hour. Jesus didn't know only the father knows. And so Jesus says here, do not be distracted by false prophets saying, look, here's the Christ or look, there he is. The instruction we're given is not to discern the day or the hour 
Um, we're given this warning so that we would be watchful and to be prepared, not predict, but to be watchful and alert and prepared for the coming of the Lord. Amen. Christopher, there's a brand of liberal Protestant scholarship that, that um, has, has insisted for a while that Mark 13 is about the events in 70 AD. Um, and then, as you just said, there's, there's a certain kind of American Protestant piety um, that is, looks at Mark, Mark 13 and, and, and similar readings in Daniel and like is drawing parallels with nuclear submarines and, yeah. and political events. Yeah. Um, and, and I think what you're saying is um, that, that it, it was about 70 AD and it is about the coming of the son of man when he comes in great glory in the clouds to gather his elect. Um, and, uh, and, and I think I've, I, I remember actually being a little distressed uh, when I was younger, like maybe 20 years ago. And when I had encountered that fact that, um, mm. um, well, Mark, Mark appears to have been written um, after, like, I don't know, when's uh, Mark generally thought to have been written in the year 80, 85, 70, um, after the events. And so it's actually, they're, they're putting the prophecy of, of this in the mouth of Jesus. Um, but I have since gathered, uh, I, I've been given to understand, I've been taught that the Christian community in Jerusalem um, fled to the hills uh, yeah, in 70 yeah. um, and, and remembered Jesus' teachings and said, oh, yes, <laughs> this, is, this is what he was talking about. Um, Christopher, there's a, there's, do you know about the Arch of Titus? So uh, the, the, the Roman emperor who- Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, who ordered the conqueror- uh, the, Right. Who, who ordered yeah. the, 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 spoils, uh, the, the spoiling of Jerusalem- his name was Titus Vespasian, and uh, his his brother Domitian um, had this this arch constructed very near the Roman Forum to celebrate the the conquering of Judea, uh, the, the the quelling of the Jewish rebellion in Judea, rather. And um, and there is a a spooky uh, to any faithful Jew or Christian, frankly, a relief panel on the inside as you go through the arch. I, I've never been there, but like. I've, I've, I've seen a documentary on this of Romans carrying the holy vessels out. Mm. Uh, and one of the, one of the most visible ones is the menorah. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, it, it I, I say this just to highlight um, this concept of the abomination that causes desolation um, to see, e, uh, to see holy things spoiled mm. by yeah. unbel- unworthy hands and by believers um, and I, I don't know what that would be kind of in our context. Uh, maybe the, 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 I don't know, not, not to trigger people, like the Muslim call to prayer in, in a historic Christian cathedral or something. Mm. Wait, that's happened, right? I'm, mm. I'm referring to the Hagia Sophia in, in Constantinople, yeah. in which there has been a call to prayer. So um, it would be something like that. Uh, but Christopher, I want to also want to point out that this, this reading and this Sunday is sort of a proto-Advent Sunday. Can you smell yes, it, it in the yes. wind? Yes. Um, yeah. We'll get to this, our collect at the end, Christopher. This is one of the, uh, the stir up collects, right? Um, stir up, O Lord, the wills of your faithful people. Um, and this was always for many years, the collect for the last Sunday before Advent. And this was, a, this was called stir up Sunday. 
And this was when Victorian Christians would make their Christmas puddings. <laughs> they'd make it then, they'd make it now, and then they'd eat it on Christmas. And this is where we get the, the old joke about like giving people concussions with uh, fruitcakes and stuff like that, because <laughs> like they had been made back in November. But yeah, um, this, this is an apocalyptic Sunday full of apocalyptic readings. And, and we begin to smell Advent in the air yeah, it, and it's coming. Isn't that interesting, Kirk, how the, the church year ends here on the same note it begins, that, yes. that Advent is a, seri- uh, is a season of preparation and yet we prepare to be prepared. Like the last yeah. two Sundays are very much eschatological. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so it's fitting, right? There's, uh, there's symmetry in the church year because our only hope is, is our Lord coming again. Mm. Otherwise, we are fools to be pitied. Yeah. Shall Final we move thoughts? on to our, our uh, theology segment, Kirk? Let's I know do that. We're that. a bit short on time. So uh, there, there's plenty we could say more about this text, but let's, let's move on to our theology segment. For our theology segment today, we want to talk about something in our prayer book, a rite called the reconciliation of a penitent, a reconciliation of penitence. And Christopher, I think you'd probably agree that that's a mouthful. Um, You probably know it in more common parlance as confession or confession and absolution. Um, And this has been much on my mind recently because, as I've mentioned in previous episodes in the last several months, our parish has been going through a very meaningful Sunday school um, session, unit, something, uh, 10 sessions on the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. And we didn't do it very imaginatively, Christopher, when we just kind of went through it section by section. And you and I in this podcast have been going through different services, rites, and um, I guess resources that, that are available to us in the Book of Common Prayer. We've talked about morning prayer. We've talked about evening prayer. We've talked about different prayers within morning prayer and evening prayer, right? Uh, we've talked about the Great Litany. We've talked about the Great Thanksgiving. We've talked about Holy Communion. We've talked about baptism. Um, and one of the things we haven't talked about are any of the, quote, pastoral rites. And this is kind of a, a grab bag of, of rites that, um, that, that uh, uh, clergy wearing their kind of pastoral hats in seasons of, of, of grief, anxiety, uh, special occasions in life. This includes everything from rites of healing, thanksgiving for the birth of a child, communion to the sick, ministry to the sick, ministry to the dying, uh, burial of the dead, holy matrimony, right? Funerals, weddings. Um, But today we wanted Christopher to talk about 
reconciliation of the penitent. Like I said, um, that is that is confession and absolution. Um, healing Christopher was central to Jesus' ministry. Um, he was God incarnate, right? He cared about bodies. Healing is also central to the ministry of the church, right? Which is the body of body of Christ. Um, we use spoken prayer, anointing with oil, the laying on of hands are the principal outward means employed by the church for its ministry. Um, and then there's also this, Christopher, the rite of reconciliation, um, which is also a gift through which healing can take place. Now, Christopher, all Christians, clergy and laity alike, are called to be agents of healing. Nonetheless, the regular forms of healing ministry that are set forth in the Book of Common Prayer are expected to be coordinated and ordered under the authority of the bishop and priest having spiritual charge. And in a little bit, I'd like you to say a little bit about this. Um, and this includes, especially in this case, the reconciliation of a penitent. Christopher, um, before we start to talk about this, you are always one who is good about reminding us to define our terms. So sure. what do we mean when we say reconciliation of a penitent? Uh, reconciliation to, to God the Father. Um, we have sin that separates us from God. And so um, God desires not the death of sinners, but those that if you sin, that you confess your sins so that you might be saved. Um, so it's important for us to um, confess our sins uh, to be reconciled to God. Um, we confess our sins. Uh, we show remorse. Um, you know, we talk, uh, Psalm 51 is, is this, this great, uh, kind of guide in, in what it means to be like truly sorry. It means we aren't sorry because we are caught. It's not sorry because there are consequences for sins. It's that we are truly sorry because we have sinned against God. Um, and so we may have hurt others, but ultimately like sin is something that is an abomination to God and that requires um, confession and absolution. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's this particular right can be super helpful. Um, so we want to distinguish uh, our practices from those of Roman Catholics um, for whom it is necessary, but also like we, we want to, uh, so, so while this is something that's available to Anglicans, it's not, um, you know, re required to take Holy Communion. Um, but we, like, before Communion, we have Confession and Absolution every single Sunday in as part of the service, because we don't want to come to Holy Communion um, without being absolved of our sins. Um, and uh, so while... I think perhaps are more uh, evangelical and very people who are skeptical of uh, people who'd say, well, there, there's a priesthood of all believers. Um, so let's just say a good Lutheran, a good Lutheran would say that, um, you know, you don't need a priest to absolve your sins. Um, you don't need a priest to even um, consecrate let, Holy Communion, but let the priest, me, let me priesthood is given for, for um, Kirk, for, uh, I don't for think order, a good Lutheran good would order. say that. Okay, well, I, I think I Lutherans, disagree. Lutherans have a have a, a high view of the office of the keys in John twenty. Um, okay, well, I disagree with you. I think you're <laughs> wrong. Um, they, but they say I think they would say that um, while anyone can do this, um, we reserve this for the church for the sake of order. 
Um, and so, um, you know, the criminal on the cross did not receive formal confession, you know, formal absolution. Of course, you know, Jesus can provide that, but like, um, the, the things that are extreme, like extreme, uh, circumstances, like let's say, um, you Christian who's listening to this, um, are on the deathbed at the, someone's deathbed, they confess their sins. Um, do they need someone to absolve them? Or can you do that before they, they die? Like, can they be received into Christ's loving arms? Um, that we don't use, like, we don't put God to the test by saying that like those things in extreme circumstances, um, negate the, the, the usefulness of bishops and priests, um, th th that ministry given to them. That may not make sense. Hard, hard cases make bad law is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Kirk, I, I, I want to say, um, we don't, I don't have that many people coming to me, um, for confession, but when I do, it's, it's someone who's feeling burdened and there's something, uh, that is really cathartic in, in this confession to a priest and hearing the words of absolution spoken over you. Um, and it's a wonderful thing. So like, if, if you've been burdened by a particular sin and have a priest who can hear your confession, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, I, I mean, I would more than encourage, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe this is not the time to say this because we should go through the right. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to wait to say this. I'm going to wait to say this until we go through the actual right. right. So, um, I, I'd been kind of paraphrasing a bit of the, um, the rubrics before the right in my introduction. Let me just read outright, um, some of the, uh, the, with the prayer book, how the prayer book addresses the concerns of secrecy, because I think this is a lot of people have shame um, mm. that prevents them from seeking confession. Um, that I, I've had that in the past. Sure. <laughs> so, um, so I quote, because physical, emotional, and spiritual healing are often interrelated, it is particularly appropriate to encourage confession, reconciliation, and forgiveness in the context of ministry to the sick. The content of a confession is not normally a matter of subsequent discussion, meaning it does, it should not come up again, right? When you, when you confess, you shouldn't have to worry that the priest will be like, Hey, you know that, remember the thing we talked about, <laughs> right? So um, the idea is as far as the East is from the West, so your sin is from you, right? Um, in the context of Christ's forgiveness. Uh, and, the and Kirk, I, I, I really love um, Rod Rosenblatt, uh, Lutheran pastor yes. and theologian um, has a great story about this. Yes. Um, was it him or someone else? It was him. It was yep. him where uh, a woman felt burdened by a sin she'd committed many years earlier in right. life that she had had an abortion and yeah. um, she subsequently had been married and had never told her husband yep. about the abortion and, and just felt guilt, uh, felt the guilt and shame of that sin and wanted to confess that to him. Um, to, to her pastor. She said, like, this, this is burdening me. And yeah. she confesses her sin and um, receives absolution. Um, and then she asked, like, asked a question about the abortion. And he looked at her and he said, what abortion? Yes. Like, the, like he wanted to, to, to indicate to her that this thing that, 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 that you have confessed, um, God has separated you from your yes. sin as far as the East is from the West. And he remembers it no more. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's where our, I would say, so I, I probably have a, a higher, more Catholic view of this than you do. I would say this is where we differ from Roman Catholics. Um, uh, there, there is no, 
a work you have to do after absolution. The work has been done. The work was done once for all. And, okay, um, so, and so I might have to, I might have to disagree with you. I, <laughs> I don't believe that's Catholic teaching. I, I think penitence is, is essentially like work to get back on the path, not work like additional work that you need to do to be absolved. So it's like formational work. You think that would be Catholic I believe so. teaching? Like, like I believe pro- so. But, to properly but form us, us like guessing what right? Catholic <laughs> believe is <laughs> probably not. If only we had someone to talk to. Yeah, we, we need to have Father thing. Harrison on again yeah. to uh to, to correct us in this weird. But 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 that is what purgatory is. You're clean, but not fully sure. clean. You've got work to do. And that is just antithetical to the gospel, right? Or oh, my understanding vain, of the gospel. It's a vain thing fondly invented, Kirk. <laughs> I, I'm I'm open to um upon my waking my eyes after my death, <laughs> Jesus saying. <laughs> no, you got 10,000 years of cleansing to go. And I'll be like, oh, okay. All right. Um, but, uh, but I think my, under- I, that is not how, what the gospel teaches. And, and I have lots of Catholic friends and I'm really sorry. So anyway, um, quote, the secrecy of a confession is morally binding for the confessor and is not to be broken. And I remember at one convention, uh, a young clergy member um, brought this up and our bishop at the time, Bishop Duncan, really in, in a gentle but firm way. I, I know, Christopher, you know how he can be gentle but super firm. was like, you may never speak of it. Any, like, you need to go to jail mm. before you ever tell any legal authority what has been um, con- confessed to you uh, within this context. So, yeah. So that, that should be super assuring to, uh, to anyone who's seeking this. Um, but let's look at the right. So if you have a 2019 Book of Common Prayer in front of you, it's on page 223. Um, it's also available on our website, and we should, uh, we should put a link to this in the show notes. It begins with, the penitent begins, the penitent, that's the person confessing, right? Um, Bless me, for I have sinned. And Christopher, the priest says something super simple, right? Would you mm-hmm. mind reading that? The Lord be in your heart and upon your lips that you may truly and humbly confess your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And then the penitent has a prayer that's very short. I confess to Almighty God, to his church and to you, that I have sinned by my own fault in thought, word, and deed, in things done and left undone, especially fill in the blank. And then this is where you, you confess your specific sins. For these and all other sins that I cannot now remember, I am truly sorry. I pray God to have mercy on me. I firmly intend amendment of life and humbly beg forgiveness of God in his church and ask you for counsel, direction, and absolution. And then the rubric um, specifies, quote, here the priest may offer counsel, direction, and comfort. Um, And then on page 224, the priest has a declaration, an absolution, Um, And then at the end of that declaration, which again is super Mm. short, the the priest says, the Lord has put away all your sins. And the penitent says, thanks be to God. Uh, The priest says, let us pray. Um, And this prayer, Christopher, is quite remarkable, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that it's optional. Yeah, it shouldn't be. Oh, most loving father, by your mercy, you put away the sins of those who truly repent and remember their sins no more. Restore and renew in your servant whatever has been corrupted by the fraud and malice of the devil or by his own selfish will and weakness. 
Restore and preserve him within the fellowship of the church. Hear his prayers and relieve his pain through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And then Christopher, how does the priest conclude? Go in peace and pray for me, a sinner. Man, I love that. The, it concludes with the priest asking for a prayer. And that's it. That's it. Its beauty is its simplicity. Um, and we see several times in the gospel, um, uh, there, there is not a complicated, there's, there's, there's no complicated right to confession um, with Jesus, right? Um, he immediately offers pardon to all people who penitently confess. He's go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Pick up your mat and walk, right? <laughs> um, it's beauty is its simplicity, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the text lurking behind this. So let, let me, let me, let me just in our limited time, Christopher, go back to the nub where you and I may have some gentle disagreement <laughs> is John 20, um, where uh, after, uh, John 20 begins with the resurrection, where Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene outside, outside the tomb. Um, and that chapter ends with Jesus appearing to the disciples in the upper room. Uh, 20 verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Thomas, uh, oh man, I know it's before then. I'm sorry, that's a dead end. Yes, it Kurt, is. It's a dead end. Are you looking for the keys of the kingdom, Kurt? Yes. When he said, he showed them his hands inside. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. Oftentimes, this is called the little Pentecost. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold this forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And that's, that's verse 22. I'm sorry. I, I started uh, later when he appears to Thomas. Yes. And Christopher, you're correct. This is often called the office of the keys, right? Yeah. And, um, then, and then we see it in the synoptics, like in, in Matthew, uh, what is it? 16. Um, when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, um, based like he builds on Jesus, what, what we saw in Mark on Peter, you, Peter are this rock and on this mm -hmm. rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Matthew, Jesus continues saying, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And yes. whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And here's why I, a layman, not clergy, have a really high view of this is because I see it as assurance. Hmm. Um, when clergy, regardless of how sinful they are, uh, regardless of who they are, their past, whatever, um, by the power of the Holy Spirit in their ordination, through the authority of their office, um, pronounce you forgiven. When the church pronounces you forgiven, you can trust it. Um, it's not a hack in a tent. It's not fraudulent. Um, you'd not have to, you don't have to wonder, did I really mean it? Right? Those are the words of the devil. <laughs> but rather you can trust that these words are trustworthy, right? Um, the authority is that of Jesus and the apostles passed on through the apostles and through the succession of the apostles' successors. Um, and so I find it reliable and trustworthy. Um, and, and Christopher, we had some really interesting discussions uh, in adult Sunday school this Sunday, um, kind of around this. I think that there is in... Um, I, sometimes I call it Romophobia. There is in a, a sure, lot of sure. American Protestantism um, 
uh, some concern that there's some mumbo jumbo involved here. Um, and, sure. and some of that came up and we had some interesting conversations. Um, and I think as a result in North American Anglicanism, this uh, right of reconciliation, this right of confession has gathered dust in the closet. Mm, um, indeed, Because yeah. we're concerned about erring on the side of maybe mumbo jumbo or covering my bases. I think maybe a lot of Protestants think that it's kind of just CYA, like covering your backside. Like, well, I, I went through confession, I'm good now, right? Um, and, and yet nonetheless have afflicted, con go through their life with afflicted consciences and could benefit from this very thing. So I think you addressed this earlier. Um, I'm making gestures as if the, like, the listener mm. can see. Uh, uh, confession and absolution happens on, on, on two levels. So one is um, the level of the afflicted conscience. Right. So there's assurance. And this is, Christopher, what you 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 spoke about, uh, the, the power of soothing, delivering soothing balm to the afflicted conscience. Right. Mm -hmm. There's something something releasing, something healing that happens when you painfully drag your sins into light and have to mm -hmm. say them out loud. Mm hmm. But then the release that comes subsequently from that, right? So there's that's and and, and I'm making a, a gesture like on a lower plane. That's on that's on the the human and pastoral level. And you have seen that and the power of that, the power of release of the conscience. There's also the objective level, right? On, on in the in the heavenly places, right? Spiritually, um, to have Christ's pronounced words of absolution placed upon you, um, that there is no guilt. There is no guilt, as well. And so. Um, even when I live in my day-to-day -day life in the muck, I take assurance in the fact that I have been absolved by someone who has the authority to absolve me um, by the words of Christ, <laughs> right? And so the mm -hmm. devil, when he whispers in my ear um, mm -hmm. that I am a sinner and, and he reminds me of what I have done, um, I can say several things back to him, right? As Martin Luther used to say back to him, I have been baptized. I am baptized. Mm. I've been baptized. I can also say like, no, I am absolved. I'm absolved. I'm absolved. So maybe I don't know if our listeners have ever thought of it, confession and absolution as assurance, um, but I, I, let me recommend it as assurance. What do you think of that? Yeah. I, I don't disagree. <laughs> so it's kind of monologue. And, and I don't want to draw, draw, drive a wedge between you and me in, in theology of this, um, you know, as, as is common for me, like I don't say any more than scripture says or anything more than our prayer book says. And so um, the fact that, that um, we confess our sins in the daily office and that a deacon um, uh, says something different, but yes, um, the deacon says, grant your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, it's not as though these people are still in their sins. Right. Right. Um, and, and so, and again, this is, this isn't an, an argument that, that um, priests and bishops are unnecessary. Like we said, like right. the unusual circumstances do, don't, don't make good like norms. Um, but, uh, like those people do not need to worry that their sins are, are, are right. still kind of on them. Cause we right. believe that when we confess our sins, um, that, that he is faithful and will cleanse us from all. Well, the flip side of that is the yoke of, uh, of worry and concern that plague 
our very faithful Roman brethren, right? Like that they mm-hmm. might accidentally be in a, um, like die, sure. <laughs> having not had a chance to go to confession, sure. which that is a yoke that is not of Christ either. <laughs> and it's interesting, as, as we talked about um, abominations, like kind of religious abominations, these, these things that are just sacrilegious and, and abhorrent. Um, what came to mind was uh, the movie Silence, uh, if you've seen that, Kirk. Um, where, you know, in a shame, I, I honor, not. shame, I made culture it halfway through the book that, that, um, these Japanese people, uh, these Christians are asked to step on an image of Jesus yeah. indicating kind of, um, but anyway, like, as I thought about that movie, um, it's, it's a super big deal, um, for these Japanese Christians to have a priest and have access because, um, they're like, man, I, I really want confession and I really want, you know, Holy communion, you know, apart from, from which it's, it's like, there is, is kind of, they, they see no life and, and that, that we would differ there. Right. Um, where it's, it's like, um, as, 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 as much as, as we would love to have, you know, a church nearby everyone where they can receive the sacraments, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it's not like life or death. Yeah, I would encourage anyway. I would encourage lady to avail themselves of this. Yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, Christopher, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I would imagine the, the clergy would be encouraged if there was a movement of laity demanding more frequent confession. Sure. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, it might, might even uh, be a spiritual renewal within the church. Mm. Should we end in prayer? Let's. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Stir up, O Lord, the wills of your faithful people, that bringing forth in abundance the fruit of good works, they may be abundantly rewarded when our Savior Jesus Christ comes to restore all things, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O God, you made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week, Kirk. Next week we plow the fields and scatter the good seed on the 